Okay. Hi, everybody. All right. So, everyone, welcome. This is Christy Balsells. Lee, Ger- Rachel German is with us today from Personal Disability. And, Lee, are you there? Can you hear me? I'm here. I'm here. Perfect. So, welcome. We're so excited to have you and to be talking about this topic. You know, we have many adults in our MITO community who I think struggle in a regular way about this tough decision of whether or not they should work because work is not only a way to support yourself, but for many people it has been part of their identity or um, part of their personal satisfaction or a necessary part of their life in order to make ends meet or support their family. And then with adult onset mitochondrial disease, in particular, it can all of a sudden be very challenging to know which way to go. And this is um, really important that we talk about it. And I want to welcome you, Lee. Lee German is the uh, CEO and founder of Personal Disability Consulting, and I'll let her tell you a bit about herself, but I just want to say that Lee and I have had a couple conversations, and Lee has helped us with a couple of our um, MITO patients who have been facing some decisions about disability and needing some um, support, and she's a great advocate. I really am excited to know her and really excited to introduce her to all of you today. So, Lee, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, and, uh, and then we'll jump right into our discussion topic. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, <clears throat> I'm a private advocate and case manager, and I'm most like a geriatric care manager, but I specialize in working with adults who are eh, primarily 18 to 60 who are living with illnesses, injuries, and diseases that um, have become disabling conditions or getting in the way of their lives. And my background is that I have a bachelor's in music therapy and used music for a number of years as a medium in working around with people with disabilities, children and adults. And um, then got a master's in management of human services and continued to work with people with mental health issues um, in a a variety of settings, doing consultation and referral, first in a statewide situation in Massachusetts, which is where I am now, and then nationally in the United States, doing consultation and referral for adults living with disabilities. And I've had my own practice since 2002. and some of that is phone consultation, some of that is more face-to-face here. And part of, there are three things that I do. I help people understand their situations, strategize and plan about how to deal with them. Um, For some people, I'm a long-term case manager, team leader, point person, um, both for the family and the person with a disability who may be a spouse or a sibling or a niece or nephew. And there are a lot of people who I help with transitional issues, like leaving work, asking for accommodations at work, um, helping figure out what to do with benefits, and sometimes helping them apply. And I think that uh, Christy said it very well, that living with a progressive chronic illness and wanting to work and needing to work is a charged issue. I think there's literature out there that says it's better for everybody's physical and mental health in general to work. It's certainly better to work financially, but it's not always in your best interest when you're living with a chronic illness to be in the work situation that you're in. So I think it's really important that each of us 
take stock of, of our work situation. Um, and I want to tell you what my, my starting assumptions are. I believe that most adults that I know either need to work or want to work. I think in, in the United States, and for those of you in Canada and England, I think we all are raised with a work ethic. And if you're reasonably in good mental health, unless you are in such a financially well-off situation that you don't need to think about that, that you need to work or you're doing unpaid work at home as the, the, the parent at home, which is huge work, um, even though it's unpaid. And I believe in planning for the worst, but living as positively as you can. And the third thing that I think is a basic assumption of all the work I do is I want to help people have as much control in your life as possible because there are so many things, especially living with a disease like mitochondrial disease, where you don't feel like you have control. And so those are the things that you bring to thinking about your work. A friend of mine who's an insurance salesman says, you can't predict, but you can prepare. So the first thing I think you need to do is take stock of where you are now and what do you know, given the unpredictable nature of the disease you're living with. So you start and ask about what's changed for you? What do you know has changed about what you can and can't do? What is changing for you? And what does this mean about your ability to work right now in the work situation that you're in or wanting to get into a work situation? And what does it mean possibly about the future? What do you know and what can you predict? And how can you prepare? And is there a point that you might be too disabled to work? So we're going to talk about some of how you take stock and how do you really think about that. And I would encourage you to not do it on your own. Use your spouse, your friends, a therapist, um, somebody like me, Christy, to help you think objectively about this because there are lots of people who will hang in as long as they can in the work world and really put themselves in jeopardy. If you are still working, here are the two questions that I think are absolutely critical to ask yourself. Um, the first is, am I making myself sicker by working in this job right now? Um, if the answer is yes, then think seriously about needing to make a change. And if you, if the second question is, have I put my job in jeopardy? Is my job in jeopardy? If the answer is yes, then you're, you're behind the eight ball. So I talked to somebody at some point with mitochondrial disease who said, I'm working and I know that working is making me sicker and I know that I, my performance is not good. I've had many people over the years call me and say, I've never requested accommodations in the workplace. I have XYZ kind of health issue and I've just been put on probation by my supervisor. Well, that's a bit late, so you don't want to wait until somebody else is making choices and decisions about your ability to work. You want to make the decisions yourself. So ask yourself those two questions. Am I making myself sicker? Or if I'm not working and I want to work, will I make myself sicker by working? And can I do my job without putting it in jeopardy? Because either of those, quest either of those answers, if the answer is I'm, I'm doing either of those things, then you're in trouble right now. As Christy said, there's a lot that we gain from working, and I'm not going to talk a lot about it. It's certainly money to pay our expenses, to care for our family, for our lifestyle, health insurance and benefits, and structure, purpose, self-esteem, feeling like we're making a contribution in the world, feeling competent, having a professional identity. 
and when you can't work, we all experience a huge amount of loss of of everything that comes with money and benefits. There's a loss of stability, sometimes a loss of home. Um, you may feel a whole lot of isolation. Uh, there are going to be huge changes in the roles within the family, especially if you've been the working spouse and you're mar- if you're married and you've been the working spouse and the well spouse has to go to work. How are, everybody's role is changing, including your children's if you have children. So when you can't work because you're living with a chronic illness, you know that it's impacting on your whole life. But the one thing that I will say about when you can't work is it gives you the opportunity to do new things and to heal. And that's something important to hold on to, that it is an opportunity to be a new you, even within the limits of living with a chronic illness. And I think that we all need to think about what the price of working is when, we're, when, you, when you have an illness. Um, a chronic illness. So, Christy, I'm hearing beeping. Or is everybody? You're, you're all right, Lee. Okay. You're all right. If people jump in and out of the call, you'll okay. hear, hear a beep, so you're fine. Great. Um, so, when you're working, what's the price? Are you making yourself sicker? Is your work performance uneven? Is your fatigue level going through the roof? Are you keeping up with job expectations? Um, how much do you have left over for your family and your friends? and your other responsibilities and yourself. So what is the price? How much is it costing you to be working? What I'd like everybody to do or use, take away from here is think about where you've been in your job, you know, that, that with mitochondrial disease there's a progression here. So where were you in your old job? Where are you now with your current abilities? And what's coming up in the future? So some of the things to think about is – what can your body and mind handle? How many hours a day realistically can you work? Can you do that five days a week? Or if you work four hours a day or eight hours a day, do you need two days off or three days off? What kind of physical exertion can you handle? Are you in a job that requires lifting, bending? Are you doing construction work? Are you doing driving? Um, how much is that wiping you out? And what about your mental exertion and ability? How much can you do? Um, how much is your... Is your memory intact? Are, are you having problems with executive functioning and problem solving and thinking clearly? Um, are, if, if your job involves a lot of mental power, mind power, are you able to do it? Are you finding changes in functioning? What about your pain level? What about your stamina? How are they in the job you're in now or when you think about going into a job, how much can you handle? This is really how much can you handle? And what happens when you add stress into the mix? So all of those are the questions that you need to be asking yourself about what you physically and emotionally and mentally can handle. And you need to think about what happens when you do too much. If you work an eight-hour day, are you out of commission for two days? Can you work Monday, Wednesday, Friday? Are you in a job that's really a 10-hour-a-day job or that the traveling in it is what's wiping you out? Can you pace yourself in this job or what do you need to pace yourself in any job, what what's the pacing that's going to keep you healthy? Do you need to take breaks during the day, or do you need to take time off? How often do you need those breaks? Are you talking about, you know, several sick days a month? Are you talking about uh, an extra half-hour break during the day? Are you talking about that you get sick and then you're out on short-term leave or, or using up your sick time for a week or a month or three months? 
So these are the questions to think about for each potential job when you're thinking about working, and even when you're thinking about unpaid work in your home. What are all of these different aspects of what you can and can't handle mean about what you, what can you do? So then you need to take, knowing that, knowing what you can handle physically and mentally, think about your skills. Can you do the job you were in before? Can you do the job you're in now? Which of the tasks can you do? Think about them in terms of the functions. Break it down. Look at your job description. Think about the things you do every day. Which of these do you think you can continue to do? Which do you think you'll be able to do in the future? Are there other tasks, either ones that you're, you have strengths in or interests in or other jobs that you could do? If you're doing heavy physical labor, could you do a desk job? And a, um, you know, if you're doing intellectual work, could you do something that had more flexible hours? If you're doing a job that requires um, high productivity, could you do a similar kind of job with less productivity? And in a minute, I'm going to talk about essential functions and reasonable accommodations. But you want to think about what does it take to be able to do these different jobs and these different job tasks. And if you can't do what you were doing before or you are doing now, that you should be stopping it for your mental health and your physical health, you need to think about are there new skills that will help you? Many of us get retrained, um, you know, whether it's a, a, a midlife career change. We're gone are the days when people get in a company and are there for the next 30 years. So think about what the new skills are that you can acquire that might be help you in the work world. I'm going to talk about accommodations and the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, the Americans with Disabilities Act is a federal law around accessibility for people who have disabilities. And Title I of the ADA talks about people with disabilities in the workplace. A qualified individual with a disability is a person who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, but that person can do the essential functions of the job with or without what's called reasonable accommodations. And a reasonable accommodation is a modification or an adjustment to a job or a work environment or maybe an employment practice that's not an undue hardship to the employer. And usually when we talk about undue hardship to employer, we're talking about what's financially unreasonable. Um, so if you're blind, you don't, you don't try to get a job driving because that would need a whole other person to do it. But um, I have repetitive strain injury. It was reasonable for me in a work setting to ask for somebody else to do a limited amount of data entry for me so I wasn't doing quite as much. So I'm going to mention real quickly um, some different types of accommodations. The um, PowerPoint has some more details. They could be physical accommodations. That can be changes in the workplace. That could be um, a button for somebody in a wheelchair to open the door, an electric, electric door opener. It could be somebody doing some specific tasks for you, physical changes in your workspace or adaptive equipment. Um, accommodations can be <clears throat> in the areas of time and tasks. That could be flexible schedules. It could be telecommuting, uh, job sharing, reorganizing or restructuring some of your tasks or reassigning some of them. Um, something that's important for people who have a lot of scheduled medical appointments is that you can use Family and Medical Leave Act 
or sick time for scheduled medical appointments. So it may be that you need frequent breaks, and that's a reasonable accommodation. It may be that you need to process information in a certain way. There are people who have learning disabilities who say, you know what, I need written instructions. I need you to email me after you tell me what you want me to do. I need one person to talk at a time in a meeting because I'm deaf or hard of hearing. So those are all different kinds of possible accommodations. I want to talk for a minute about how you communicate with your employer and sometimes who you should be talking with. And the important thing to think about is something that, that I've heard called WIIFM, what's a radio station, WIIFM, which is what's in it for me. Um, your employer's perspective has got to be and focus has got to be on getting the job done. And when you talk to your employer, you need to be focusing on your job performance. So it's not appropriate, to, even if you are sociable or friendly with your, your supervisor, to come in and dump all of your problems and tell the whole detailed story on your employer. You want to focus on your job performance, and you want to discuss, you want to talk about what can be done that's going to enable you to do your job. So you want to only discuss that your specific health issues that impact your ability to perform your job. If that's fatigue, talk about fatigue and talk about needing breaks. If it's um, tremors and you can't use the keyboard, but you need um, to use a tape recorder and have somebody else do some data entry, then talk about that. So you want to provide some limited information from your doctor that's pertinent to what you need, um, that's evidence to support you, but you don't want to provide all your medical records. It's, it's too much information. Just focus on what, they, what your employer needs to know about you for you to be able to do your job. And keep a paper trail. You know, it may be if you have a, a sit-down talk with your supervisor, send a follow-up email saying, thanks for meeting with me. Here's what we agreed are the next steps. Um, I think you need to assume that you're the person who's going to educate your employer about mitochondrial disease. And terrible as that may be, it's just the reality. Um, when I had a workers' comp case around repetitive strain injury, the HR person I don't think had ever dealt with um, a workers' comp case. She didn't know how to tell me what the process was. Um, I knew what I needed in the way of accommodations, and I knew about the ADA, so I knew how to talk about that. But don't assume that your employer or even the HR person is going to be educated about the disease or necessarily about the process. If you need accommodations if, to do your job, start with your supervisor to talk about that, what you need. Um, your human resources office is going to be able to talk to you about policies, about your reasonable accommodations policy in the ADA, about Family Medical Leave Act, about health insurance and leave policies. And if you're applying for short-term disability or long-term disability, even if it's through the company, usually all of that is going to be through a caseworker or what different names um, at the insurance company. And that's the person that will be your contact around the application and updating information. So it's really critical to be clear with your employer. And I want to talk now a little bit about, okay, so I can't do the job I'm in now. Do I take another job? Do I go out on leave? <clears throat> Excuse me. I had a client who was in a professional capacity, was earning over 100000 a year, and he, because of his um, progressive illness, 
he couldn't problem solve, he couldn't remember, he couldn't process quickly. He knew he couldn't do his job, and he knew that if he kept doing it, he was going to get fired, even though it hadn't been an issue yet. And his neurologist said, go get another job, because I don't want you to get depressed, I want you to have structure. Well, if he had left his current employer, he would not have been able to get the long-term disability benefits that he had. He would not have had the quality of health insurance that they would have continued paying for him. So my recommendation in his situation was go out on short and long-term disability and then look for part-time work or look for volunteer work, but don't don't jeopardize the the benefits that are available here that you won't be able to get anyplace else. Um, if you go and you take another job and your income is significantly less, when you go out on Social Security disability insurance, your monthly income will be less. If you go and take a part-time job or a, a less demanding job, will that company offer you the same kind of benefits that you have in your current job, or will there be no benefits? So before you take a less demanding job with less hours, compare the benefits and think about what you'll be losing now. Also think about if you'll be considered disabled by either long-term disability or Social Security disability, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So when you can't work, it's really important to know your insurance options. Communicate with the appropriate personnel, whether that's HR or your supervisor or an outside insurance agency. And when you're applying for benefits, make sure you're completing the applications, keeping copies for yourself, providing all the required supporting documentation, including medical documents from all your doctors, um, and, and doing that with updated requests. Some insurance companies want information every three months or every year. Keep a paper trail. Keep a log. Follow up with written communications. And if it's too complicated for you and overwhelming, get somebody to help you, either a family member or a friend or somebody like me, so that it's, it's a lot of work when you're applying for disability benefits. <clears throat> Christy, how am I doing on time? You're doing good, and I think the information is so valuable. So um, I'll remind everybody that we will have a chance to ask Lee questions. So just jot them down so that you can remember. And, uh, and Lee, if you're a little flexible about our end time, then we'll have a chance to be sure we get you know, the fine. majority of our questions. That's fine. So you're, there, you're doing great. There are great. two sets of benefits that I want to talk about. I want to talk, and I'm going to do this briefly, So, and each one of these is a full training by itself because they're complicated. So um, bear with me. There are benefits that are available from your employer if your company is big enough, um, and there are benefits that are available through the state and feds. So, and again, I'm, I apologize to those who aren't in the United States. I'm talking mostly about U.S. laws, um, though Canada and the U.K. have benefits as well that are often better, I think. So Family Medical Leave Act, which is the FMLA, offers job protection. It's a federal benefit of up to 12 weeks unpaid time off per year, assuming that you worked enough the, year, the 12 months before. And um, it's unpaid, but it protects your job. It says you can come back to this job or a similar job. Um, and your benefits will continue. They'll continue to pay whatever part of um, your health insurance. And if you have any sick or vacation time racked up, um, you can put it towards that unpaid time so you won't be unpaid for so long. Short-term disability, also known as STD, is often for six or 12 months at a company um, at full or partial salary. And long-term disability starts when the short-term disability ends. 
um, it's often 60, 65, 70% of your base salary. And um, both of those, again, involve an application with the insurance company and a lot of documentation from the medical provider. Um, don't assume they're automatic. Uh, insurance companies, this is my bias, it's my experience, insurance companies are in the business of making money. They are not your friend. You need to build your case. The um, claims representatives have a significant pressure on them to keep their quotas low. If they can deny you because you didn't uh, provide adequate documentation or they lost your information, they're going to do it. So be thorough, be complete, give them more information than they need, um, give them everything. So health insurance through your employer. If you're on Family Medical Leave Act, your health insurance will continue and the employer continues to pay whatever portion of the premium they've been paying. With short and long-term disability, your employer may or may not consider you an employee at that point. Usually with short-term disability, you still are an employee and long-term disability, it may or may not. If you're considered an employee, they're going to continue to pay a portion of the premium. If they don't consider you an employee, you're going to have to pay 100%, which is when you go to COBRA. So COBRA is the option of continuing health insurance where the employee pays the entire premium after you've lost your employee status. And um, in this past year, with the, um, in, in the U.S., with the stimulus packages, there is a premium reduction for employees who've lost our, our jobs um, where the employees don't have to pay 100% of the COBRA, but I believe it's 35%. And there are resources, um, there are links that, that will give you more information about this. Government cash benefits are through Social Security. And um, the definition that Social Security uses for disability is not necessarily the same as what it is for the Americans with Disabilities Act, or which we talked about before, or for um, the long-term disability through your company. Social Security says you must be severely disabled, expected or have been disabled for 12 continuous months, or expected to result in death, i.e. be terminal. Um, and you're too disabled to perform what they call substantial gainful activity, which actually translates into a dollar amount. Um, and in 2009, I don't have it in front of me, I think it's $940 a month gross. So if you're a consultant and you can work one day a month and make a thousand, gross $1,000, but you're flat on your back the rest of the month, Social Security would say, oh, we think you can do SGA, and you'd need to prove medically that you really can't. Social Security Disability Insurance is called SSDI. That's the one those of us who've worked and become disabled and been paying into Social Security, not working for a municipality, a state, or a town that has its own retirement system, but um, have paid into to Social Security system. If you've worked long enough and recently enough, and that means five out of the last 10 years, then you're eligible for Social Security Disability Insurance. Um, and what I want to say about that is every year, about two or three months before your birthday, you get a statement from Social Security that says, based on your work history, if uh, you continue this way at retirement age, you'll get this much a month. And based on early retirement, it would be this. And gee, if you became disabled now, this is how much it would be. Don't throw those out. Keep a file and keep them because if and when you can't work, that will give you some sense of what you're looking at as income. 
SSI or supplemental security income is if you're disabled and poor, and we're talking about very limited income and assets for a single person of under $2,000, assets for a couple of under $3,000. I'm going to talk briefly about government health insurance. There are two main insurance policies. Medicare is the benefit that you get if you're a senior on Social Security or if you become disabled and are getting Social Security disability insurance two and a half years after your date of onset. So Social Security says you became too disabled to work in January of 2008, um, then in July of 2010, Medicare would start. Medicaid is a federal program for people who are poor, and it's partially state and it's um, administered by the state, so it's a little bit different state to state. It's automatic in some states if you get SSI. For people who are disabled and poor, usually low income, sometimes always low income, sometimes low assets, um, you can get Medicaid, especially before you get Medicare, while you've got that waiting period. And sometimes um, in some states, if you're a disabled adult and you're working and you do not have health insurance through your company, you can get Medicaid as a working disabled adult. So I just threw a ton of things at you. What do I think is important when you're thinking about do you work or not work, or if you can't work? If you can't work, think out of the box. Think about part-time paid employment if you can. Absolutely. Um, think about creating a new structure and finding volunteer work that meets your needs, finding things that you love that meets your needs. Learn new things. Barter and trade becomes more important when you don't have the cash. And have quality time with your family and friends. Um, I think in closing, the thing that's really important, you know, you hear it from the Mito Action folks all the time, is take the best care of yourself you can, maintain your health and prevent exacerbations. And, you know, if I, if I want you to take one thing away from listening to me today, it's Maintain control and keep the decision-making as much as possible. Don't give up your control because it's too painful to look at it or you think you can hang in longer than is realistic and you're putting your job in jeopardy. We all have to think about the long-term impact on money and benefits and lifestyle, but you have to keep your control as much as you can. Um, and you want to keep your quality of life. So, yes, think about think about money, think about benefits, make decisions that will allow you to not go a day without health insurance. Um, and those are the things that I would say to think about in taking care of yourself in this process of working and not working. Lee, the, you did a great job with, I think, um, touching on some of the probably more detailed points that are just so confusing. And also I think the the bottom line is, as you say, that um, it's a tough choice. It's a really tough choice, but ultimately um, I think there are probably two resonating questions, which is, number one, if you're not working, how can you support yourself? And number two, if you're working, um, however that may be, are you harming yourself or potentially aggravating the disease by working? And And it's We'll just lay out on the table that even having to think about that is terribly unfair. <laughs> but, 
But once we get past that, I think the whole point of this conversation is to try to help to tease out the answers to those questions, which are very individual. And I'm sure lots of people have questions. So let me unmute the line so that we can um, start to um, to have some questions and answers, um, and we'll have some discussion about that. So thank you, Lee. Hold on one second, and I'll unmute everyone. Hello. Okay. So I, I just want I want to say before anyone goes on, this is SIP, um, Communication Assistant two three three eight. Just can we slow down a little? I'm I've been trying to type everything and it's just been a little hard. Can you just um, slow down a little so I can type everything everyone's saying? You must be really exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> typing all of that. Whew, good job. <laughs> so, um, is it possible for us to send you, if you don't have access to computer, is it possible for us to send you a copy of the PowerPoint? I can relay that to the caller. And and she she does have it as well, so that that does help, Lee. So um, so, um, but we'll we'll try to speak clearly now that we're on our questions as well. Okay. So, um, so I'm sure many of you have questions. We'll just take turns. So who would like to jump in first? And if you'll just briefly introduce yourself, if you're comfortable with that, and then uh, you can ask Lee your question. So go ahead. I don't mind going first because I'll forget my question if I don't. <laughs> um, this is Judy Christie from North Carolina. I've already failed the whole first part of the presentation because um, we we made a quick decision to leave our our jobs um, with a stable company in Connecticut and come down here where life was supposed to be easier and cost of living better and um, the just the getting away from the cold weather and we just thought that would be the best decision. But I wish we had had this presentation before because um, I don't have a good job. I don't have any benefits except what I'm paying for on my own. And um, I'm at the point now of there's no doubt that I have mito because the type of mito my grandson has is passed from mother to child. Um, so so I'm the carrier and I've passed it along. But I'm going to um, – there's nobody here. I'm in the boondocks on the coast, and there's nobody here who knows anything about mito. So I'm going to Houston, where there's a mito center, to see a neurologist for a muscle biopsy because from what she tells me, and this is my grandson's doctor, is that once I have this diagnosis of, of mito through the muscle biopsy and a lumbar puncture, then I will have everything I need based on all these other diagnoses, which probably I don't have. It's probably all related to mito that I will have enough then to apply for Social Security Disability. I can't afford to not work, and I'm working part-time, but I'm killing myself, and um, I don't know what I'll do for that two-and-a-half-year period with no medical insurance, but at this point I think I'm, I need to apply for disability, and I just want to know if that, in fact, is a diagnosis that's qualifiable for disability. Social Security needs there to be a diagnosis, but they also look at the functional issues. What does this mean? So, uh, um, even if you have a diagnosis that's not definitive, if you've got you've got reams of documentation of these are your symptoms. You know, if a doctor can say these are your symptoms, these are the tests. Um, 
the more that you can document around your functional issues, including having you or somebody who knows you well write up what you observe. As long as you've got medical documentation, you can provide supporting documentation about this is what a typical day is like for me or a typical week. Um, but it does help to have the documentation. Do you have health insurance now that you're paying for? Yes, privately. I'm paying privately. $500 a month for it. Uh, yeah. Um, My other question is that I have been going to a rheumatologist, and she knows nothing about Mito, and she's even had the arrogance to say to me, you don't, you have fibromyalgia, and you don't need anybody but me. And when I asked her about disability, she says, you need to work. And I say to her, you have no idea when I put in an eight-hour shift in the emergency room at the hospital, which is what my part-time job is, I'm, I am exhausted for the next two or three days. I'm done. I am wasted. Well, then you need to work more is what she says. So uh -huh. there's such an ignorance around the whole thing. Yep. Um, the one thing I would say to you mm -hmm. is check out whether North Carolina – whether North Carolina's Medicaid program has um, a Medicaid benefit for disabled adults who are working. Okay. Um, and what the, you know, are you single or are you married? I'm married. My husband is, has polymyositis, and he's been disabled for a number of years. Okay. Um, because, you know, if you're, comb I don't know what the income guidelines are, and I don't know, um, I don't know without checking whether North Carolina has um, a, a Medicaid coverage for disabled adults who are working and don't have insurance through work. But if that saves you $500 a month, it would be a lot. Yes, it would. Okay, that's a good suggestion. Thank you. Thank you, Judy, for the, asking the question. Um, who would like to ask the next question? I would. Go ahead. This is Rhea. Um, thank you for the presentation. This is excellent. I just would say that um, I'm on SSDI. And I'm on Medicaid, MassHealth. I'm right near you. And I have recently reinvented myself through vocational training. And now that I'm trained, I have been offered a position for contract freelance work that I could do telecommuting from home. And what I have to do, because I'm really very ill, you know, so I'm not 100% sure that I can do this safely. And I have to make a decision. I have to tell them how much, how many hours I can work per month or, how, or what is the maximum number of freelance assignments that I can take per month. And I might need a reasonable accommodation. Like if, if normally they expect a freelancer to finish an assignment in three days, I may need a week because I don't know how many days a week I'll be able to work. Right. So one of my questions is, or my main question is, should I tell them up front that I have a chronic illness and, the, and that I need to know this because of that chronic illness, or should I just say without saying why, maximum assignments I can do per month is two, and I need a week to finish each assignment, or should I say why? Should I say that I have a chronic illness? I think it's better to self-identify. I think it's better to say you have a chronic illness. You're in Massachusetts. Massachusetts has um, the Mass Commission Against Discrimination, and it's more generous than the ADA. The so, Texas. I'm, I'm in sorry? Massachusetts. I'm in Massachusetts, but the – oh, I'm sorry. I'm speaking quickly. 
I'm in Massachusetts. The employer is in Texas. So I don't know how that impacts what you were about to say. I'm not sure how that impacts state law, but um, the Mass Health will certainly continue as a working person with disability. Mm-hmm. And um, I think you would do better if you think it's going to affect your speed to tell them up front they've already made the job offer and you can say, I can do the job and maybe we're going to need to experiment about um, what my capacity is for the first month and then I can be clear about what kind of accommodation I can need and what my productivity is. Oh, that's an excellent idea. Experimenting for a month would really help. Because you, it doesn't sound like you know yet. I don't. What your pacing is going to be. Right. So you may want to give them a heads up and say, I have a disease that makes me, you know, affects my stamina. I'm going to do my best this month, and at the end of the month I'll be able to tell you what I need in the way of an accommodation. Excellent. In in that same vein of the question then, Lee, in general, do you recommend full disclosure um, for any individual from you know, facing a challenge or a diagnosis, or are there cases where it would be better to not um, tell your employer or potential employer? Um, I, I think it disclosure? varies on the situation. If you can do your job and you don't need to ask for accommodations or different treatment or a way to do things, and it's not observable, you're not taking sick time, you're not you're, you're keeping up with your job demands, there's no reason for anybody to know. If you're taking unpredictable absences, you're not getting your job done, you'll look funny because you have tremors and people are going to think you're drunk, um, then you need to say something well before your job. You don't want to wait until your employer says, this is not working. You want to be proactive. But if you're doing okay, don't say a word. Okay. that's um, These are great questions and very helpful answers. Um, so uh, who would ask the next question? Well, this is, this is Ruth Gerke from Columbus, Ohio. It actually isn't a question, but uh, this may be helpful information. As far as uh, Social Security disability, they just uh, phone conferenced me, and they were not uh, aware of the disease, but they did go and, and award my disability on the first try due to my symptoms and my inability to do uh, activities of daily living. And then when it came to my uh, applying for my long-term disability, that's why I ran into a, um, a snag working with the insurance company. And after two and a half years of sticking with it, I had to get an ERISA attorney. Actually, yesterday I finally got the phone call that my case was awarded, that I, was, uh, um, I, I beat the big insurance company. I won my case. But I had to keep sticking to it and have the documentation so uh, all I can do to advise people is keep the documentation, don't give up, and fight for your rights. Absolutely. And along those lines, there are a couple of things to know. One is it's not just a diagnosis. A letter from a doctor that says you have mitochondrial disease 
and the doctor doesn't think you can work is not what they're looking for. They're looking for what's your diagnosis, what's your prognosis, what tests have you had, what treatment have you had, and what does this mean about your functioning? And Social Security offices are really backed up so that if you I, – I heard from somebody that I've worked with who has mitochondrial disease who was awarded Social Security disability in four months. She had a lot of documentation. She had a lot of symptoms. She'd seen a lot of doctors. Um, but there are people in some states where you're waiting a long time to get approved, and it can be a real financial hardship. Good for you, Ruth, for sticking with it. That's what you have to do. Good. Now, Ruth, you mentioned um, the type, the specific type of lawyer that you had. Um, would you say something about that for yeah. folks who don't know? Uh, it's a, uh, an ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, because it's uh, the um, long-term disability was through, is through, I guess, the federal government, from what my um, research is, and so. Um, I had to get a specific type of attorney, which which uh, handles ERISA claims, and that's the person that had to file it. And it had to the case actually went to federal court, and it had to be a federal judge that had to review all my documentation and um, um, go into my favor. And so, as of yesterday, the insurance company uh, was told that yes, my documentation did prove that I was um, permanently and totally disabled and that I should receive the benefits. And so, um, um, but it had to go to a federal court through a, a special type of attorney to get that uh, done. It took me two and a half years, but I would not give up. Well, congratulations, Ruth. Thank you. Um, I have a question from um, one of our members, Lee. Yep. And the question is about how someone who um, has not been able to work due to the symptoms of mitochondrial disease and will not be able to get a job in the future, um, what's the process that they need to take to be able to begin to get disability? Are there any, I guess, key components that need to be in place? Well, you need to submit the application. And at this point in time, you can, you can go to socialsecurity.gov and apply online. And the wonderful thing about the application is you can save it and have other people review it. I do that with people frequently where um, somebody will say, uh, I, I want you to either do the whole thing for me or, gee, I don't have a lot of money and I'm concerned, but I want you to proof it and help me make sure that I'm being accurate and thorough. Um, and then you can go back in and save it and update it. And when you're ready, you submit that. I encourage people to gather your medical records yourself because if you rely on Social Security to send out a request to your doctors and you have two or three or four doctors and one of them has said, I think you have rheumatoid arthritis and you should work more, and that's the, letter, that's the documentation they get, but they don't get the three who say this is mitochondrial disease and here are the symptoms and this is what it means, then you're... Um, you're not going to win. So the more that you can be proactive and gather your medical records and submit them, the, the, the better it is. Um, and the more that you focus on functioning, what are your symptoms? What are your, what's your treatment? Um, what have you done? 
all of that helps build your case. What if that person hasn't worked in the last 10 years? You had mentioned something of yeah. having to work five out of the last 10. Yeah. I have a client right now who has really severe attention deficit. He's not paid taxes since 2002. He's tried unsuccessfully to be self-employed. Um, so we, we have to make the case. If, if we say that onset is now or a year ago, Social Security is going to say, you don't meet the definition of, of you, you don't meet the credits piece because you haven't worked five out of the last ten years. Um, what we can do with him is prove retroactively that onset is really 2002. He's got the medical documentation for that. Um, and Social Security, what I've been told in every training I've ever had, is Social Security disability, even if they say, gee, you've been disabled since 2002, they'll only give you one year retroactive benefits. I've been told that. But I've also seen cases where I've helped people prove back, you know, 10 years where they've gotten more years of, of that money. So don't ask me how it works. Um, but I'll tell you, something, something that I do say to people, if you can work, is don't stay out of the workforce for more than five years. Even if what you're earning is uh, $5,000 a year, um, each year, Social Security has a dollar amount for what's considered a credit. It used to be a quarter of work, but it's a credit now, and you can get four a year. So try to earn, and I don't have right in front of me, I can find it, um, what that minimum credit is for 2009. But roughly, if you can make $5,000 a year um, just to keep yourself in the pool, I, I think it's pretty important to do that. Is, is it okay if I email you or, or call you with a little bit more specific questions? Sure. All right, thank you. Uh, Lee, I have another question. This is from Heidi. Um, she is deaf. Use, Heidi says, I'm deaf, use a power chair, non-invasive vent, lots of tubes and beeping machines, and I have a service dog. So I have lots of difficulty with people making assumptions about my capabilities much the opposite of the majority of mito patients who, quote, don't look sick. Do you have any suggestions for getting past that so that a person can actually, I guess, um, be able to successfully work if they have the potential and the capability? It's a, it's a hard one, Heidi. I've seen that happen, too. Um, I think the more... You can set up front, you know, if you're if you're applying or talking to some, well, if you're ap applying via email or with a cover letter, you may want to even say that right up front. I have a number of disabilities that make me look less capable than I am. I just want you to be aware of that. Because then when you're actually meeting with somebody, I'm sorry, you said I have some, say I have some dis disabilities at what? That look that make me look less capable than I am. Just what you said. I and wonder if. Go ahead, Lee. Sorry. And I and I want to show you and tell you what my abilities are. Thank you, Lee. Uh, does anyone else have a question 
for Lee. I just have a question about, this is Judy from North Carolina again. Are you a Social Security disability attorney, or do you take the place of an attorney? You know, what, would, what is your function like in the whole process? Yeah. I am not an attorney. Um, I know a number of attorneys in Massachusetts who I think are excellent. Um, I am... I have a master's in management of human services, um, uh, and when I help people, I don't help. I have never gone to an appeal with somebody. Um, usually, when I help people, it's with the initial application process. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be a phone conversation. That can be a meeting. Um, and given the online application, there have been times that I've helped people, you know, in Florida um, apply and either just helped proof and strategize about what to say and how to document um, or actually filled, you know, I have a client now who has a progressive neurological disease who's in Massachusetts, and we had several sessions where I sat down with him and filled it out for him, with him. Um, So it varies. Social Security has very specific guidelines about how much representatives can um, be paid, and it was designed for people, for attorneys who were um, representing clients in mm-hmm. appeals. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, and part of that is a very specific fee agreement about how much you can charge, and um, and whether um, you're waiting. They prefer that you wait. You have to wait until the person wins with Social Security to get paid through Social Security. Um, And if you want a release for somebody to talk to Social Security, we have to fill out that form. Um, So I actually, sometimes when I'm representing somebody, when I'm I'm calling Social Security on behalf of somebody, I have to fill out that form and I have to fill out the waiver of payment line on that. Um, But what somebody is paying me for then is to help them do the application, but not technically to represent them. Do the guidelines then apply to you? Like, for instance, I don't know how in detail we want to get on the on the phone conference, but when my husband um, applied, um, they, of course, we did it on our own the first time, and they turned him down, which was normal. Then we hired an attorney, and the case was dragged out for over about two years, and I think they were. He was entitled to one, one third, I believe, of the settlement. It's, something it, like that. It's um, up to twenty-five percent, or I want to say fifty-three hundred dollars. Well, so he it got may the whole fifty-three hundred. So, yes. um, but whichever we, is less. Okay. Social Security says whichever is less. We were glad to get through it and couldn't probably have done it. However, I'm just wondering if that is the way to go, or in some instances, for instance. My husband's disease was progressive. He had it for 12 years by the time we applied, and we had lived in Connecticut for that time. And they would not look at any of the records from Connecticut. They only cared about what happened since we'd come to North Carolina, which didn't make any sense. Um, Is that standard? No. 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 And is that something an advocate would know about? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. I, I also will be emailing you, I believe, Lee. Thank you. It's okay. I'll be sure to have Lee share her information. Um, I think we have time for a couple more questions, and uh, and I have a clarification from Heidi Lee. Um, 
really I think what she was asking was, Heidi says, I do my work at home and I'm telecommuting and can be 100% successful. When I get the funny looks, it's when I go out to meet clients. So in your opinion, should I go out for myself or should I hire someone else, like an assistant, to do my face-to-face work? Um, I think it has to do with your comfort level and how much you feel like educating other people. If it just feels easier to get the work done to have an assistant go, then I would say do that. If you're going to be able to work effectively, more effectively meeting that person, then give that person a heads up when you're making the appointment. Just want you to know I'm... I look like this, but that doesn't mean I'm not capable. So just pre- just be prepared. Um, okay, thank you, Lee. Uh, I'm sure there may be one or two more questions that we can field. Lee, are you okay on time for a little I'm bit? I'm okay, fine. super. Um, so someone else who um, has been waiting to ask a question? Hi, this is Dawn Murphy. I just had a question about... Um, when you're applying for Social Security Disability. Um, I I had a job that I worked at for, you know, seven years and was laid off a year ago, and now I'm only working part-time. So when they take into um, consideration the, the amount that you would get, how is that better? Now I'm just working part-time, so I'm been making, you know, a lot less, but I'm still having problems even with that. Social Security has some kind of formula that I have no idea how it works. It is based on your lifetime earnings. Okay. Um, So the longer you work part-time, low salary, the more it lowers it. Okay. Um, In the short term, it's not a big deal. If you're working part-time, lower salary for five years or ten years, then that's when you might see a difference. Okay. But if it's um, if it's one year, you know, maybe it'll lower it by $5 or $10 a month. Um, if, it's, if it's more than that, it will be more. I, I do not know the, the um, I don't know the formula that they use, but it is supposed to be your lifetime earnings. Okay. And do you need, if you have symptoms, but you, um, you know, and obviously I have a lot of symptoms and I've been to many doctors and I'm still going through the process. I haven't had a biopsy yet, which would be the next thing, but my daughter, you know, has been severely affected. So it is kind of presumed that I am going to have it. Um, is it best? to wait until you have a definitive diagnosis before you apply? You know, I think you can start the process. Okay. I think you start the process, you provide the medical documentation you've got. Um, If you're talking about another, but you've got to not be working when you submit that application or or not working more than a couple of hundred dollars a month. If you're earning five, six, seven hundred dollars a month, they're gonna look twice at you. Um, if if you know that that biopsy is gonna be in four months, 
it may take them that long to get to your stuff anyway. Right. So start the application process if you feel like now is the time to be doing it. And then provide the additional documentation as it becomes available. I want to jump in here, too, and say that um, in the past, and I can I can do this if you ask me, I can't describe your particular situation, but I have written letters for patients just describing how mitochondrial disease is a diagnosis that is um, more of a journey. It's challenging to get a definitive diagnosis that often diagnosis is made based on clinical symptoms and that the disease is highly variable and can be unpredictable day to day so that, you know, it doesn't follow the same pattern that um, many other conditions do. And sometimes that really helps um, as supplemental information just from a professional and from an organization that's basically stating backing you up without this, without me being your doctor and telling exactly what your case looks like, I can say many people with mitochondrial disease need wheelchairs sometimes be, due to fatigue um, because they are unable to walk sometimes related to the muscle weakness caused by the mitochondrial disease. And that helps, I hope, sometimes to clarify, um, you know, that confusing piece of, well, how can you be applying for disability if you don't have a diagnosis? Okay, thank you. Um, okay, so other questions? I do have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Ellen, and um, I was recently awarded SSDI, and I just wondered if we might have any recommendations um, for me and, and in general for other folks um, in terms of kind of what happens in terms of the renewal process and you know, if at some point, you know, one feels like you want to try to work part-time, any, any guidelines or suggestions regarding those things? Um, Social and Security rank has, I'm not sure what the right word is, um, but kind of rates people as, gee, we think you're likely to get better right away, so those folks are supposed to be reviewed every year. People who they think are pretty chronically ill, you're, it may be every seven years or every five years or every ten years, Social Security is backlogged, so it takes them a long time to do the things that they're supposed to do regularly and routinely. Um, when you get a letter from Social Security saying, we want to review you, um, you want to you know, treat it like a new application in the sense of making sure you're providing the medical information that they need, they're probably going to want to know what's changed, what's gotten better, what's gotten worse. Um, for the most part, I do not think redeterminations are happening real often um, because everything that I'm seeing and hearing and reading about Social Security offices is that workers are retiring, that they're understaffed, that people have weights. You know, there are a lot of offices that don't answer their phone. Um, when you get assigned a worker, you have that person's extension, but there are lots of offices um, that, especially in places like Texas, Texas, they don't answer their phone. Uh, Rockville, Maryland doesn't answer its phone. Um, so they're, they're not going to be on top of doing a review for you. Um, you asked me other things, Ellen. What, oh, oh, in, ter in terms if you, of if you, if you want to work. work. Mm -hmm. If there's a change um, in your employment situation, you need to inform them. So I have a client who works, um, has mental health issues. He works 10 hours a week. 
um, makes $150 a week. He works for a really small company. He doesn't get a pay stub. We make a copy every week of his paycheck. And I keep an Excel spreadsheet because there's something called trial work. And, um, okay, I don't have it, the dollar amount in front of me. I think that trial work in 2009, hang on and I'll pull it. Um, the trial work amount, um, you want to work, you can gross up to a certain amount before your Social Security disability insurance is in jeopardy. Um, I'm trying to talk and pull my file at the same time. Um, trial work, trial work. If I, ah, um, here we go. Substantial gainful activity that I was talking about before for somebody who is not blind. I'm sorry. Hello. Yeah. I didn't. Uh, I didn't know if I was on mute. Um, you said substantial gain. Substantial gainful activity is $980 a month. That's the amount Social Security thinks is if you can gross that much, you are um, able to work. But for those of you on SSDI, if you can earn $700 a month, and remember that some months have five weeks, if you can gross $700 a month, Social Security thinks you can do trial work. So the complicated answer is, the simple answer is if you want to protect your benefits, don't gross more than $700 a month in any month. Don't earn it based on the hours you've worked. The complicated answer is it's, it's a whole lot more than that. But the simple answer is if you don't think you can work, and you want to work part-time, keep it under $700 a month. And then um, inform Social Security on a monthly basis. Send them copies of your pay stubs or of your check. And do you need to inform them even if you're making way less than 700 Technically, you should. Mm -hmm. But they won't, it, it, it won't affect your benefit. Mm And if um, you're if you're able to work, does it start sort of raising them like oh you know does it make them more skeptical? Not if, if it's under seven hundred dollars mm -hmm. a month. Okay. And if you're blind, it's a higher dollar amount. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. So I think we need to start to wrap up. Um, does anyone have a, a burning question that they've been uh, hoping to ask Lee? Can I ask okay. a question, even though I did ask one before? <laughs> sure you can. Go ahead. Um, although I have barely worked, um, I have actually used up my trial work period, and I have only 18 months left in my extended period of eligibility. So if I make over SGA for several of the next 18 months, but then I need to back down from work, will I be jeopardizing my SSDI for, like, the rest of my life? Will I have no. a hard time getting it back? Uh, I believe the answer to that is that you have a five-year window to be able to resume the SSDI to have what's called an expedited reinstatement. Five-year window after the end of the EPE. I am... Uh, I'm looking. I'm not sure if that's um, 
fight. You have 36 months where you can still supplement the SGA, which is where you are now. Mm-hmm. And after that, you have five years where you can resume the SSDI benefits with what's called expedited reinstatement. And does that really work quickly? Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> the last time I helped somebody with an expedited reinstatement was Maryland. And um, I here's another thing. If you're – I'm digressing, but it's part of this case. If you are sending something to a Social Security office or an insurance company – do receipt requested so you can prove that they got it. I'm sorry, ma'am. You said if you're sending something to a Social Security office or the insurance company, and then what? I'm sorry. Can you just slow down a little? I'm sorry. No, it's um, okay. I'm just typing every single I know, word you I say. I know. I'm sorry. And everyone else uh, says, so. Um, make sure you get a, um, a receipt back. You want proof that they've received it. So in this case, I mailed the application in. I saw the supervisor signed for it they lost the application for the reinstatement. I had to send it in again, and then it still took four months, I think, before they reinstated him. That was, but that was a, that was a terrible office. Uh, it was a terrible office to work with. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, Lee, let's take a minute and have you go ahead and share uh, your contact information as well as your website. Okay. I am based in the Boston area in Massachusetts, and my website is www.personaldisability, all one word, .com. And my email is lee, L-E-E, at personaldisability.com. I'm sorry, can you repeat your email? Yep, Lee, L-E-E, at personaldisability.com. And my office phone is 617-879-6039. Let's say the phone number one more time, Lee. 617-879-6039. Great. And just for your information, everyone, I'll make a link and post this on the website with the summary of what um, Lee has talked about today as well. So, Lee, do you have any um, closing thoughts or comments you'd like to share? You've been an incredible resource. I'm so thankful to have had the chance to um, have you join us today. So any closing thoughts? Um, Just that I threw a lot of technical information at you. And there are links, um, I think, right, Christy? There are yes. links to links some of the key, the or a lot of the key, these key organizations. Some of the conversations we were having about Social Security Disability or Americans with Disabilities Act, all of them are very intricate, hour-long, two-hour, three-hour, all-day trainings in themselves. So it's a complicated process. Just understand that negotiating a disability in the work world or negotiating benefits is very complex and get well informed you know be kind to yourself and be as well informed as you can thank you lee and the the links that she's referring to are already on the website now so you don't have to wait until we uh post the summary of today's meeting you'll find them at the bottom of the page announcing today's meeting. 
And uh, remember that the quickest way, if you ever want to go back and peruse the summaries and find the audio recordings of any of the meetings, is to go to mitoaction.org backslash I'm sorry, can you repeat that, um, that website? Mito? Mitoaction, M-I-T-O-A-C-T-I-O-N uh-huh. dot O-R-G backslash blog. B-L-O-G. So, Lee, I just want to thank you. You covered a lot of content, and I think we'll have you back in the future and talk maybe some specifics about disability and the process that's involved with that because you really are a great resource and such a great advocate. It's obvious you really care about trying to help also, which is really means a lot as well. So I'm sure everyone will join me in thanking you, Lee. You are welcome. Thank you. And um, and thank you so much. I'm going to end the recording, and then I have a few announcements, and then we'll um, say adieu. Okay? So, Lee, thank you so much. We really appreciate the time you shared with us today. You're welcome. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.